couple quick things. Some of you have, um, have come back to our table and you've asked me this question. Um, which ones are the good ones? Okay, listen. <laughs> um, listen, you cannot, you cannot travel the world and market yourself poorly. Now, it's not all about marketing, but if you, if it, listen, I've preached tons of bad sermons. I just choose not to reproduce them. You see, because people, people say, then people say, listen, everything we get from you is good. That's because for every one up there, I did 10. And, and you, that's what you market. So it's good. Listen, the, some of the best places to start, okay? People say, where do I start? This is the best place to start if you don't have this. It's, called, it's an all-day seminar called How to Read the Bible Like a Hebrew, okay? And it will go through all the basic stuff. It'll really set you up well, okay? So you could start with that one. Uh, another really good one back there is Jesus' first sermon, it's very important what someone says first in Hebrew culture. So I do a whole rabbinical thing on the Beatitudes, okay? It's called Be Happy. It looks like this. I won't forget it, right? And the other thing that's very basic that will help you um, see the Bible a lot differently in a lot of areas is one called the Tabernacle of God, where I go through all the pieces of the Tabernacle. All of this stuff comes back through the whole Bible, okay? And we've got plenty of these because most of these are fairly new. I've got plenty of these um, because I sent enough here for, for here and for Invercargill, which is where I'm going um, in a month's time. So, um, so, but if we sell out, I can get more from Brisbane. That would be a good problem to have, okay? So, so you guys go back there and get, get as much as you can. Um, it'll change the way you look at God forever. It also helps us to um, fulfill what we feel is our mission to the poor, okay? So it's a pretty good trade. You give me something that helps me feed people that can't eat. I give you something that helps you revolutionize the way you look at God. Pretty good deal, okay? So you guys check that out. Also, I mentioned this last night, but I'll mention it again tonight. Um, we've started an online e-mentoring program where once a month for one hour, I'll be in an online classroom teaching people what my rabbi taught me. It'll be a little bit deeper than this because you've got to go even back further. And so, But if that's something you want to um, participate in, you can just check out my website, and it's up there. Okay, let's keep going because I have somewhere I want us to get tonight, and I'm... I'm just warning you already, I'm setting you up, okay? I've been setting you up all night. Because we have to deal with these things. These, these things are the things that are destroying the credibility of Christianity. Is, is this idea that the kingdom of God means going to heaven one day. The whole, world, the whole world can live in hell, it doesn't matter. As long as I go to heaven one day, that's the most selfish Christianity I've ever heard in my life. It's not what God called us to be. Okay, Mark chapter 10. It's another imagery um, from Jesus' life that talks about what it's like to be a kingdom person. And the imagery is casting aside your garment. Casting aside your garment. Mark chapter 10, verse 46 through 52. It's a very common story, but there's an interesting verse right in the middle that we can read over if we're not careful. It says this, and they came to Jericho and, as he, and as, as he was with the disciples, and a large crowd went out to Jericho. Blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting on the side of the highway begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David. There's that son of David, son of 14. See, it could mean either one. He could have been saying Jesus, son of David, or he could have been saying Jesus, son of the 14th Toldoth. Either way, it's the same thing. He's, they're calling him Messiah. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many warned him that he should be quiet, and he cried a great deal more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. 
And they called the blind man saying, be of good comfort, rise up. He's calling you. In other words, hey man, it's your lucky day. It's your lucky day. Um, And casting, now here's the weird verse. And casting away his garment, he rose up and came to Jesus. And And then answering Jesus said to him, what do you desire that I do to you. Now, I want you to understand, look at, look at this, the sentence structure again. And casting away his garment, he rose up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said to him, what, has the blind man said anything to Jesus yet? No. What did he do? He cast aside his garment. And casting aside his garment was some sort of statement that Jesus knew required a response. It says, in answering, Jesus said to him, what do you desire that I should do to you? And the blind man said to him, my Lord, that I can see again. And Jesus said, go, your faith has healed you. And instantly he saw again, and he followed Jesus in his way. Notice, notice that when, when in, in the first century, when someone got saved, when someone got converted, it wasn't just a prayer belief experience. It was, no, it was a decision to follow his way of life. It, it was about bringing the kingdom to something. But in the middle of this, here's basically the story. Blind guy crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Finally, Jesus says, would somebody bring him to me? They say, look, it's your lucky day. Jesus is calling you. And the blind man's first response was to throw aside his garment. Now, you know, you look at that in the natural, and you would think that Jesus would think, well, that's, you're a little too excited to see me. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you got so excited to see me, you started stripping off your clothes, I'd be like, hang on, hang on, hold on, right? And, and, and that's sort of the picture you get here. A guy getting so excited to see Jesus, he starts throwing aside his garments. Um, it's like, oh, dude, you know, put it back on. But you have to understand some history here to, to, to really get what he's saying. It says, it says that the blind man threw aside his garment. Well, what was true, was there anything unique about a blind man's garment that wasn't true of anybody else's garment? Anything? Of course. In first century Jewish culture, you had to have a license to beg. You couldn't just sit out on the street and beg. You had to have a license to beg, okay? So you would go through a legal process by which you proved your validity as a beggar, that that you couldn't make money any other way. Okay, and they would put you through some some sort of tests and different things to help you decide. Well, can you actually make money another way, or do you are you relegated to betting? Once they once they knew that there was no other option for you to beg, they would give you a license to beg. Now, what's the problem? You you can't, especially for a blind person, you can't display your license to beg, right? Because all it takes you to do is take your hand off it for a second, and someone could snatch it and replace it with something else, play practical jokes on you, all kinds of things they could do to you. So the, your license to beg, what they did is they gave you a different colored tallit. So everybody else's tallit was a certain color. But yours would be a different color. So a different color tallit. A tallit was the prayer shawl that was the outer garment. So it says that when Jesus called the blind man, it says the first thing the blind man did was cast aside his garment. And that action demanded a response from Jesus. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? That, that's faith right there. Why? What was the blind man doing? He was throwing away his license to beg before Jesus ever did anything. 
He was throwing away his license to beg before Jesus ever did anything. Jesus said, now that's faith. That's faith. When you're willing to throw away your license to make money because you're so sure that you're fixing to be healed, that's faith. That's faith. You say, what does that have to do with me? Everything. Is there any part of you that's holding on to something that all it takes is for you to throw that away for Jesus to touch you? You say, well, what do you mean? Well, well, let me be very practical. Um, Is anybody in this room going to a job that they hate every day? And deep in in your heart, (laughs) and deep in your heart, deep, deep in your heart, you have a deep desire to start your own business. You have a deep desire to start your own business. And you've been dreaming about it and dreaming about it and dreaming about it. You want to start your own business. You want to start your own business. But you keep going to the same job you hate every day. What's stopping you from stepping out in faith, casting off your garment, and giving it a go? That's what this story's about. This story is about those critical moments in all of our lives where we have to make a hard decision to cast off a former identity in favor of a new one. This is a story about what kingdom people, how kingdom people respond to opportunity. This is a story, let me, not opportunity, because most opportunity isn't of God. Um, but this is a story about how kingdom people respond to Jesus. This is a story about people who say, I want what Jesus has for me so bad that I'm willing to lay my license to do something else down in order to enter into something better. It's a story about that. It's a story about a church who's willing to reinvestigate how they used to do things in order to enter into God's next season for them. It's a story of bravery. It's a story of courage. It's a story of a man who is willing to say, you know what? The former things are going to pass away here. All things are fixing to become new for me, and I'm going to be brave enough to enter into it. It's a story about that guy. That guy. This isn't just a story about one blind man throwing off his tallit to get to Jesus. No, it's a story about me, and it's a story about you, and it's a story about what would happen to our life when we're willing to be brave enough to leave former things behind in order to press on to something better, to something newer, to something that Jesus is calling us into next. It's a story about not hanging on to tradition. It's a story, it's a story about and the, the Bible and history is full of these people. Martin Luther was this guy. He was. He was. Now, the people who followed Martin Luther, they quit journeying. And they slowly but surely became irrelevant. Why? Because they, they thought they found the end all. It's never the end all be all. It is, it, it is what is God calling you into next. Every one of us has a garment to throw off. What is it? What is it? Every one of us. Every one of us, maybe you're the guy here and you're 48. And ever since you were 40, you dreamed of owning your own business, but you're still working for the same guy and you hate it. And you feel deep down inside you're missing something. And all it takes is you to throw off your garment. Maybe, maybe, maybe as a church, maybe God's calling this church to investigate that the, the pieces of garments they might still be holding on to. 
that, that's keeping them from the next step of what God's calling us to in the kingdom. This is a story. Listen, when you hold on to your garments, it keeps you blind. You can't see the next stage of vision. Listen to me. When, when you, when, if you're struggling with seeing God's vision for your life, maybe it's because of the garment that you're keeping around you. And maybe all it takes is, to, is not even releasing it, but a willingness to release it in order to see the clarity that God has for us. It's casting aside, casting aside garments, casting aside garments. Now, here's, here's one more, and then I'm going to bring us to where I wanted to get to. Whitewashed tombs. Whitewashed tombs. Jesus tells a group of Pharisees, he says, you're like a bunch of whitewashed tombs. You traverse land and sea to make one convert. But after you get the convert, you make him twice the child of hell that you already are. It's a pretty harsh statement. Um, whitewashed tombs, what's going on there? Well, to fully understand this, we have to understand Leviticus. Leviticus says that it is unlawful for a person to knowingly walk into a place where a dead body is. To knowingly walk into the presence of the dead makes you unclean. So Jesus tells these people, you're whitewashed tombs. You're actually tombs, but people can't tell you're tombs. Because they're so clean. You're so clean on the outside, but the inside of you is very unclean. So that your mere presence makes other people unclean. <laughs> it's a pretty staunch statement. He's like, you're whitewashed tombs. In other words, the outside of you looks pretty, but the inside of you, actually, your very presence is making people unclean. Unclean. And it leads us to a question. Do you want to be kingdom people? you want the kingdom to be established? Let me ask you a question. Do you have any secrets? Is there anything, is there any time where on a Sunday morning you come in here and your being is simply a whitewashed tomb? Everything looks good here, but the inside of you is dying and you don't want anybody to know. This is a story about what destruction looks like. It's a story about when you do that, it doesn't just affect you. It affects everybody around you because it creates atmospheres and environments that no one can explain. When your hurt is not dealt with, when your pain is not dealt with, what that does is it creates an environment of a whitewashed tomb. Everything on the outside looks clean and put together and all of that, but on the inside, it's bad. Listen, I, I pastored at a church of, I don't know, several thousand, and my office was upstairs. I, I used to could sit up there and I would watch people come into church. I'd see it. I'd see the husband and wife addressing each other with obscenity-laced tirades, then walking into the front door of the church. Hi, pastor. Why? Because they're struggling with something they don't want anybody else to know about. There's a character issue that is not dealt with. And what happens is, is everything out here looks nice, but on the inside, there's simply a white-washed tomb. And their very presence is affecting the atmosphere of the whole place. Listen, every now and then, churches, families, everybody, everybody has to scratch the surface of the whitewashed tomb to see how much dead stuff is actually in there that needs to be dealt with. And that's kingdom. That's kingdom, people. Now, the last thing I want to talk about tonight, and this is sort of my main point for the night, is this. And everything I've talked about deals with this principle. There's a Hebrew principle of, of studying the Bible called Calvecomer, or I'll write it in English, light and heavy. Light and heavy. Every scripture has a light side and a heavy side. 
light and heavy was a principle of rabbinical interpretation. It was, it was said to help people live the best life. It was also meant to decide what do you do when the Bible contradicts itself. What do you do when the Bible contradicts itself? Which we're going to talk about that here in a second. Okay? Like, for instance, Jesus said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. Well, if you're one of these people who takes everything in the Bible literally, good luck. Right? Right? Shane, I take the whole Bible literally. It all is literal. It is, is I take it literally. I'm a literalist. Very good. Jesus said, if you look at something sinful, pluck your eye out. Go for it. You never see any of his disciples. Like he, he traveled with 12 men for three and a half years. Do you not think there was one lust issue amongst 12 men? And you never see his disciples showing up at the campfire with a pencil with their eye on it. Jesus, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> In rabbi school, these were light and heavy statements. Jesus is saying, it, it, Jesus, what, what he's saying is, is that if you handle the sin issue when it's light, it'll keep it from becoming heavy. But if you wait till it's heavy, it's harder to deal with. Light and heavy. Light and heavy. Jesus used these phrases all the time. You have heard it said, don't murder, but I say to you, don't hate. Light, heavy. Why? There was a group of people who got proud of themselves for never killing anybody. Jesus says, you haven't murdered anybody? Well, whoop de do. How many people actually murder people? I'm not concerned with the murders. I'm concerned with how much hate is in your heart. How much stuff looks nice, but on the inside, you actually hate people. So to Jesus, the heavy sin was hate. The light sin was murder. You have heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, don't lust. The heavy sin was lust. The, the, the light sin what was, was not committing Adultery. You have heard it said this, but I say to you this. This is light and heavy statements. Uh, another way you l- use light and heavy is you would use light and heavy in order to decide what to do when the Bible contradicts itself. Because light and heavy was so important. You want to handle something at the light so it never gets to the heavy. To understand this, we have to understand a Hebrew definition of sin. There are three levels of sin in the Hebrew culture. First level is iniquity. Second level is sin. Third level is transgression. Now, to understand this even further, we have to understand the, the, the pictures on the Hebrew word iniquity. The Hebrew word iniquity is the word, let me write it out. Okay? Avon. Avon, like the makeup company, right? Okay? The old Pentecostals love that, right? You see, I told you, even the word for makeup is sin. Okay, so, (laughs) Avon, three letters, three pictures. The picture of the A is an I. The picture of a vav is a hook or a nail. And the picture of the noon is fish multiplying. So when a Hebrew person read the word iniquity, this is what they read, whatever your eye hooks to, multiplies. Whatever dominates your focus becomes very large. Listen to me. When problems are in clear view, those problems are actually bigger than they, than they actually are. In a mirror, it says objects appear closer, objects mirror closer than they appear. Okay? It's the opposite here. When something is a problem and that problem is in focus, the problem becomes bigger than it actually is because whatever your eye hooks to multiplies. 
Whatever your eye hooks to multiplies. I've seen a lot of people in good situations leave those situations because the problem appears big. I'm a counselor by trade. I can't tell you the number of husbands who have left good women and four months later regret it. And all it was was the problem got bigger than it actually was. The wife leaves a good man and four months later she regrets it. Why? Because in actuality, it's just the problem became the focus and whatever your eye hooks to multiplies. It got bigger than it actually was. This is the concept of iniquity. Uh, iniquity is whatever your eye hooks to multiplies. Um, there's three levels to it. Let me, let me see if I can explain this. Let's say I wanted that phone. And so iniquity is my eye hooks to the phone and my need for it multiplies. Okay? That's iniquity. Now, in the Old Testament, could you prosecute me for iniquity? No. Why? Because you, you, don't, know, you, don't, know what I'm, you don't know that I'm thinking it. Now, here's sin. Sin is this. It says that a person sins when he's drawn away by his own lust and enticed. So as I look at the phone, as I look at the phone, my need for the phone becomes bigger. At some point, it creates a lust. Once it creates a lust and entices me, now I'm in sin. And let me just, if I could blow away some theology here, and I haven't done anything yet. I've simply thought it, it's multiplied, my eye hooked to it, it became a lust, and I'm enticed by it. That's sin. Transgression is when I actually take it. So I actually transgress the law. Now, in the Old Testament, could you prosecute someone for iniquity? No. Could you prosecute them for sin? No. Could you prosecute them for transgression? Yes, as long as you had two or three witnesses. So you had to have two or three witnesses of somebody transgressing the law. That's transgression. Now, this should give us a really big revelation of grace. Why? The prophet Isaiah says this, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In other words, Jesus doesn't just forgive you for what you've done. Jesus forgives you all the way back to your eye hook to it. In other words, Jesus forgives you for the light, and then the heavy takes care of itself. But in terms of your life, in terms of living the best life, we have to handle things at iniquity so it doesn't get to transgression. A later writer said this, fix, hook your eye to Jesus. Because whatever your eye hooks to multiplies. What would happen if we could dominate our own imagination and keep it from wrapping around things that God wouldn't want us to have? What would happen? Listen, every affair, every affair that's ever happened starts with flirting. Not every, but most. It starts with somebody flirting with another, and then it takes the other reciprocating the flirt. That's where they mostly start. Now, is that iniquity, sin, or transgression? Iniquity. That's iniquity. You haven't actually committed adultery yet. You're just starting the process of becoming inappropriate. So if you handle it at the light, it never gets to the heavy. You with me? That's just life wisdom. Now, the other way that light and heavy was used is to determine what do you do when the Bible contradicts itself. And I want to stop here tonight by 
by investigating a scripture because Jesus answers one really well. You might say, well, I thought the Bible never contradicts itself. You're right if you're talking about historical fact, but you're wrong if you're talking about commands. Oftentimes, commands put ourselves in situations where you have two contradictory commands. There's books this thick written on it. It's called Ethics. Okay, like what do you do in these situations? All right, let me give you an example of what I mean. Leviticus says, do not touch someone who's bleeding out. Do not touch someone who's bleeding out. Leviticus also says, do not leave someone for dead. Can you see where you could be in a situation where that could contradict itself? All right, let's read one. This scripture is a parable Jesus told. It's very familiar out of Luke chapter 10. Verse 25 to 37. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37. I want to I take 10 minutes or so and break this scripture down. And then I want to apply it to our lives. We're going to find ourselves in this. It says this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the Torah? He replied, how do you read it? And Jesus, um, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, Jesus answered him, what's written in the Torah? How do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. He, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. And he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus a follow-up question. And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he fell into the hands of some robbers, and they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. And a priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too the Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to the inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and I will return. I will, rebir- I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have had. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, there's so much going on here. Anytime you read a Hebrew parable... You have to understand how they interpreted it. Hebrew people read parables for identification, not primarily for content. Okay? Hebrew people read parables for identification, not for content. Here's how it worked. Jesus was called a master of Haggadah, which was the ability to teach with parables. Now, it took some skill to do it because this is how they thought about it. Anytime you're reading a Hebrew parable, first question you ask is this. Who is asking the question? Two, so who is asking the question? Two, what question is he asking? Three, who in the story would he identify with? The answer to the question is found in whoever the one asking it identifies with in the parable. Okay? Does that make sense? So if I'm asking a question, and you're my rabbi, and you say, let me answer you with a parable, I would be listening intently 
for whoever I would identify with in the parable, and that would be the answer to my question, right? So there's, there's at least two things going on here. First thing is this, is Jesus is giving us a light and heavy interpretation of what do you do when you find someone faced for, left for dead, touching them versus helping them? What do you do? If you touch them, you're sinning. If you leave them for dead, you're sinning. Which one's the worst? All right, so Jesus is, is doing that. The second thing he's doing is he's, is he's answering this guy's question. So let's go through this. Who was the one asking the question? Who is it? An expert Pharisee. So a top-end Pharisee, all right? So an expert Pharisee. Okay. What question is he asking? Who is my neighbor? Why is he asking that? He comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus is so rabbinical. Jesus says, um, I don't know. How do you read it? <laughs> You're a Pharisee. Tell me your yoke, right? And the Pharisee says, okay, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, that's it. If you do that, you'll inherit eternal life. Okay? If you do that, you'll inherit eternal life. So the Pharisee says, well, hold on then. Who's my neighbor? In other words, if I have to love my neighbor like I love myself, then let's define who are the people I have to love this way. So essentially, he's, he's drawing a box, and he's saying in this box is neighbors. Who is in here? Now, there, there is a lot of answers, isn't there? Isn't there a lot of possibilities? Couldn't, Je- couldn't Jesus have said, okay, just Jews? Just Jews. The Pharisee, okay. Maybe he could have said only clean Jews. That would have even been better. What if he said only Pharisees? What if he only said the guys who live on your street? Those neighbors. Like there's a lot of potential answers here. And it's a very important thing because Jesus is talking about something called eternal life. And he's saying, if you want to inherit eternal life, you've got to love your neighbor as yourself. The question is, who's my neighbor? In other words, who are these group of people that I have to love who I love like I love myself? So Jesus says, let me tell you a parable to answer this. Now, as soon as he said that, the Pharisee would have been listening to the parable for who he identifies with in a story. In a Hebrew parable, there are three characters. As you see at the end of the parable, Jesus said, so which one of the three acted like a neighbor? Okay? There are three characters. Okay? So Jesus sets him up. So he says, okay, there's this guy that gets left for dead. Okay? Now, and there's three people that are going to walk by him. The first one is a priest, and he walks right by him. Now, two questions. One, would the Pharisee have identified with the priest? No. No. Priests were Sadducees. Pharisees and priests did not get along because they disagreed on what made up the scriptures. The Pharisees said that the Torah and the prophets made up scriptures. The priests said that the Torah only was the scriptures. So they didn't get along at all. So as soon as Jesus said, there's this priest that walked by, the Pharisee would have been like, okay, go on. Okay, go on. The second observation is this. Our tendency is to say bad priest bad priest you walked by. But maybe that priest's rabbi, maybe he said, listen, it is a better thing for you to walk away instead of touching a person bleeding out. Why? Because the priest would have been going to offer sacrifices. If he touches the guy bleeding out, he becomes unclean, which cost him his ability to offer sacrifices. So maybe that priest, if he touched the guy, it would have cost hundreds of people their forgiveness that day. See? 
So it's totally plausible that the priest walked by. He says, okay, the second guy's a Levite. And the Levite walks by too. Now, here's the question. If you're a Pharisee, do you identify with a Levite? No. Same reason. Levites were priests. Levites were Sadducees, okay? The Levites believed that the Torah only was the Scripture. The Pharisees were about 2% of the population who believed that the Torah and the prophets were the Scriptures. They were actually, I know, you, I know this goes against some things, the Pharisees were actually the progressive visionary thinkers. They, they, they were the ones who were sort of like, they were the ones who would look at our Bible and go, that's plausible, the priest of that day and the Sadducees would have said, nope, you've added too many books. Ezekiel, no way. Isaiah, no way. Joshua, no way. Nope, Matthew, nope, nope, nope. It's got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's it. See? So the Levite walks by. Same reason, right? So here's, here's, here Jesus sets them up so good. In a Hebrew parable, when you're answering a question, if you're not the first and you're not the second, then you're automatically the third so Jesus, so the Pharisee would have been on his toes. Ooh, ooh, who am I? Who, who is my neighbor? Jesus says, the third guy is a Samaritan. <laughs> and the Samaritan actually is the kind one. He picks him up and he takes care of him and he does all this stuff. And then Jesus says, he asks him a follow-up question. He says, who acted like a neighbor? The Pharisee can't even say it. He can't even say Samaritan. He says, the one who had mercy. Jesus said, that's right. Go and do likewise. You'll inherit eternal life. So what's he saying? Two th- couple things. Light and heavy. First thing he's saying is this. Is that when you're faced with a situation of touching someone dying or, or walking away to offer sacrifice, he says the light sin is always having mercy. The heavy sin is leaving someone for dead. Later, he said this, I desire mercy more than sacrifice. In other words, if your act of mercy takes away your ability to offer sacrifice, I understand your heart. That was the light and heavy part. What was the other part? So in this parable, what is Jesus's definition of a neighbor? Who does he tell the Pharisee is his neighbor? The Samaritan. In other words, Jesus is saying, your neighbor is the person you hate the most. He's saying, if you want to inherit eternal life, you have to grow in your kingdom mentality to where you can actually love the people you think you hate. Hmm. And he gives him a follow-up tool to do that. He says, and the way to do that is don't ask, how restrictive can we make this box? Don't ask questions like, how restrictive can we make this box? Here's a better question to ask. A better question to ask is, how can I be a neighbor to someone else? How can I actually make someone else's life better? What's he saying? He's saying, you're getting so caught up in the light, you're missing the heavy. You're getting so caught up in who's my neighbor that you're missing all your opportunities to be a neighbor. Listen to me. When the spirits and the demons and, and, and the enemy of our soul, the things that can control our thoughts in a negative way and can sort of drive behavior, listen, they typically are very subtle. They don't come in Wow. They, 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 they come in very subtly and they get a foothold and a stronghold. And one of the primary ways they do that in the church is this, is, is they make the church lose sight of the heavy in favor of the light. They, they, they take an organization and they get everybody in the organization so focused on the light that they lose sight of the heavy. 
They, 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 they get so focused on, on, well, questions like, who's my neighbor? Well, let's apply it to what we're doing. They get so focused on questions like, what songs are we singing? Is our lighting okay? How's this? How's that? They get so focused on the light that they lose sight of the heavy. People are starving. We need to feed them. People are oppressed with the demonic. We need to be a hand in delivering them. People's lives are going to hell day by day by day. And we need to be a part of bringing heaven to that situation. There are single moms here who have four children. Their left eye twitches uncontrollably. And all they need for heaven to come to their situation is for a group of people to watch their children once a week just so they can have four hours alone of peace and quiet. And that would bring heaven to that situation and we walk by it. Why? Because we're worried about systems and songs and lights and fog and programs and all of that and we lose sight of the heavy in favor for the light. And when the enemy of our soul can get us to focus on the light instead of the heavy, he wins. Now listen, I'm all for details and being organized and all that and we should focus on the light. That is something we should do. But anytime we get so focused on the light that we lose sight of the heavy, then the devil wins. There's a group of people in Charleston, South Carolina, who are so focused on women not cutting their hair or wearing slacks or wearing makeup and not going to movies and making sure people don't take a sip of beer that they're willing to hate people of a different race and not feed hungry people and not clothe naked people and not visit prisoners. They've gotten so focused on the light that they lose sight of the heavy. And when that happens, the enemy wins. And the kingdom suffers. And people say, oh, it's just between me and God. No, listen, if it's just between you and God, do whatever you want to do. God can handle you. It's, the problem is it's never between you and God. It's always between you and God, and it affects a whole lot of people. May we be kingdom people who are focused on the heavy. May we be people. And you know what? All of us, all of us struggle with this. Why? Because it's the devil's primary strategy. He had this guy who had memorized the entire Bible. The guy had, the Pharisees had memorized the whole Bible, the whole thing. He had a guy who had memorized the whole Bible, yet he was missing the point. How did the devil accomplish that? How do you accomplish that? Here's all he did. He, he said, wait a minute, let's see if we can restrict this and ask the wrong questions. When we start asking the wrong questions, the right questions go to the side and we lose our effectiveness. Listen, we have got to step back and get the bigger picture. The disciples who watched the alabaster box lost the heavy in favor of the light. She's pouring pure nard on him. That's against the law. Jesus says, do not lose the heavy for favor of the light. She's preparing me for my burial. Can you keep the bigger picture here? We're six days away from Passover. I'm fixing to have the worst week of my life. Can you at least journey with me? Like no one ever got it. Jesus said, you know, I'm fixing to suffer and die, but when I die, don't lose hope, I'll rise again. Like one time he had this very special moment with his disciples. He said, look, guys, I got to tell you, this is going to get really bad. And when it gets really bad, don't lose heart. I'm going to come back. And one of them goes, he goes, yes. When, when your kingdom's established, can I sit at your right hand and not your left? And Jesus goes, you're focused on the light. Please keep the perspective on the heavy. 
please keep the perspective on the heavy. Listen, all of us need grace from God to be heavy-minded people. Bigger picture people. Listen, until all the starving people are fed, I don't think he's worried about 80-year-old women giving men lustful thoughts. <laughs> or wearing hats or pants or whatever. Until all the starving people are fed, I don't think he's really concerned about the length of your hair, men. Until all the starving people are fed, I really don't think that Jesus cares that you watched a movie with a swear word in it. Um, until all the starving people are fed, I'm not real sure, I'm not real sure that Jesus cares about all the gossip and opinions that goes on in a typical organization. Until all the starving people are fed and all the naked people are clothed and all the sick people are healed and all the demon-oppressed people are delivered, I think we've got our hands full. Can I get an amen? May we never lose sight of the heavy to criticize the pure nard. May we never lose sight of the bigger picture in trying to keep the smaller things. May we be kingdom people determined, determined to bring heaven to everywhere we touch. Lord, we give ourselves to you again with all humility. Would you just quietly underneath your breath pray this prayer or something like it? Lord, give me the grace to stay focused on the heavy. Lord, give me the grace to stay focused on the heavy. Lord, may I lose sight. May the light never be multiplied in my eyes. May light things never be multiplied in my eyes. Maybe you want to say something like this underneath your breath. I renounce any thought that has me focused on the light. I repent for my focus on the light. May I turn back and focus now on the heavy. Just repent from those old thought patterns and step back in to God's best. Lord, we love you and we humbly say that would you use us to build your kingdom. May we be the hands and feet of Jesus.